As a working mom, I was spinning on my heels trying to be everything to everyone without realizing overwhelm had its firm grip over me. And it's no wonder since we juggle many identities and responsibilities and tendencies to shy away from our awesomeness. Does this sound like you? I believe one of the keys to successful living is activating our personal power. The question is, how do we do this? Join me each week as I uncover actionable tips from experts and intentionally aligned working mums who, like you and me, are on a journey to boost their personal power. My name's Roxana. Welcome to the Personal Power Boost Podcast. Hello. Today, I am joined by a very special guest. Her name is Barty Radix. I got speaking to Barty just as the pandemic was unfolding in 2020, and it's taken me months to get the episode ready for release. Barty, if you're listening, please accept my sincerest apologies. Now, for my listeners, I have a question for you. What are you meant to do when you have to sleep with a broken heart? If you know that the very people, your caregivers, don't or can't support you, what do you do with that pain? I realise it's a loaded question and there's probably hundreds of different answers or no answers. But I have to ask the question because for so many people, it's their reality. Today, Barty gives us all a masterclass in what it means to believe in every fibre of your being that you deserve more. She is a fierce lady and I for one am honoured to hear all her stories of bravery and courage, her relentlessness to just keep aiming high and making sure that the pain of her past is energised into creativity and solutions to make her life better year on year. Enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the show, Barty. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, you're, well, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, Barty, I'd love to go into your backstory to, to bring my listeners up to date with what led you to the point in your life where you left home. Well, it's a bit of a long story, um, but I'll try to explain. I, um, you know, I, people talk about their childhood. I often say that I don't feel like I had the childhood that I hear from other people, you know, from their experiences. My life growing up in an Asian Indian culture in the UK um, meant that actually, you know, from the age of 10 years old, I was, it's almost like I was being trained to be um, the perfect wife for the future. So, you know, my life at home was about cooking and preparing dinner, cleaning the home and doing all of that with my mum. And I think, you know, so I didn't, I wasn't, you know, allowed friends outside of school. That was my, um, that was how my dad had said to me that, you know, friends are for when you're in school and when you leave school, you come home and you, and you know, that's what I had to do when I was at home, cook the dinner and serve. How how old were you roughly? Are you talking primary school age or after that in terms of being involved in the housework and and kind of... I mean, 
Well, I mean, from 10 years old, pretty much. Mm. So, um, you know, and I used to, and my mom was going to work as well. So when I came home from school, um, you know, I'd have to either, she may have started some, some of the cooking in the morning to be able to finish it off when she came home, or that would be up to me or, um, you know, for me to be like doing the cooking and the cleaning. Um, I even used to go to my granddad's house on the weekends and clean his house. Um, being the eldest daughter of the eldest son in the family, um, that job was for me. So, you know, every Saturday morning at nine o'clock, I'd be uh, driven to my granddad's house um, to clean his house. And then I'd come home on the week uh, after that and clean our our home, our family home as well. Um, oh, wow. And did you have a say in that or was it an assumption that that's what you would do? <laughs> well, there's no way that I was asked if I wanted to do it. <laughs> um, so, no, I don't I don't think I had to say it was just it was just assumed that that's what I would do um and it was my job to do it so I just did it because it's what I had to do yeah wow how interesting you know if you think about 10 year olds today asking them to not only clean your actual house the house they live in but also go and clean grandparents house I can't yeah having that conversation with my nine-year-old daughter (laughs) <laughs> yeah well I mean you know my my granddad's house I used to probably do you know a couple of years after that after you know maybe from 14 15 um onwards but yeah certainly certainly all of that and and when I look back on it now that was I feel like it was my parents getting me ready for what my future life married life would be Mm. um that's what I always think it was about so you were also cooking at home most days you were cleaning and you around the age of 10 yeah and of course I was going to school um school for me wasn't that easy either um I grew up in Leicester but it was um I wasn't you know I was on the kind of side of Leicester where at my school, there weren't that many Indian people. You know, that was quite difficult because seeing what other children or hearing about what, you know, their lives were like and what they were doing, it was so different to mine. But I just always thought that that was because I was Indian and that's what we do. So that's how I kind of accepted it because I was Indian. This is what our life was like and it was different to, you know, other cultures that, of people that I was going to school with. It's not actually until I then um, went to kind of high school and college, I then started mixing with other Asians um, and other Asian girls and then hearing that their stories were not matching back to mine. Mm. And then that's when I started feeling the unfairness because I was like, well, how come they don't have to do that? Why am I treated in this way? Why are they allowed to go to each other's houses after school? Why are they allowed to, you know, you've been at school all day um, and still everyone's calling it, calling each other on the phone and talking in the evening. Well, I wasn't allowed to do that. You know, I wasn't allowed a phone call, uh, let alone being able to see my friends because remember that <laughs> friends were at school and, and, and when school was finished, that was that. Why do, you so, think your, why do you think your dad had such a strong opinion about 
friendships being compartmentalized in that way if I if I had to guess I'd say you know maybe it was because he just didn't want me to get any other ideas other than what he was kind of teaching me in the way that he was bringing me up that would be my guess yeah I mean I have never asked him or never been able to ask him why and I even if I did ask him I don't think I don't think I'd get an answer that I don't think I'd get a straight answer so I don't think I'll ever really know but that would that would be my guess Mm. how interesting so you're you're a teenager you're noticing that your friends are having lots of social interaction with each other outside of school or outside Mm. of college how are you feeling how are you feeling inside it's just unfairness really um you know what's so different about me that I can't be like them you know that's what went through my mind a lot and you know even when we're talking about friends my dad would never allow me to have boys that were friends Mm. So that was another big thing that, you know, even from a really young age, um, and I talk about primary school now, when I, I remember a time um, when I was invited to a birthday party of a boy that was in my class. Mm. Um, you know, the whole class was invited and, and you know, very young, primary school age. Um, and so I took the invite home and I, you know, showed it to my dad and he's like, is this for a boy? I was like, yeah, he's in my class. And he just thought it was so strange that I was invited to a boy's birthday party, first of all. But it was a boy that lived on my street as well. He let me go, but, you know, my mum had to come with me. And it was primary school, so parents were still going to birthday parties. So I was allowed to go, but it was just that I was questioned about it. Like, why was I invited to this birthday party? And certainly if I, and and then later on, if I did have other boys in my class, in my school that were my friends, there was no way I was allowed to talk about them at home. I just, it was like a taboo. I wasn't allowed to talk about the fact that I might have boys that were friends. Mm. But I also remember a time when, um, now this is at college. So, you know, I was was doing my A-levels and um, there was a boy in my class, uh, in in a few of the same classes as me, And, you know, we were friends and obviously I wasn't allowed to talk about him, but um, tragically he got meningitis and he died. You know, he was, I saw him every day. I spoke with him every day. In fact, the day before he died, I was with him and we were at college together and I got home and his picture was on the front of the local newspaper Mm -hmm. and I was devastated. This was somebody that I knew, that I spoke to every single day. And my mom had come to me. She's like, what is up with you? And I said, my friend died. And she was like, the boy on the front of the newspaper. And I was like, yeah. She was like, you better pull yourself together before your dad gets home. Otherwise, you're going to get yourself in trouble. So I had to hide what I was feeling because it was a boy. Um, And I had to pretend and I couldn't talk about it because it was a boy. Oh, my days. That's just left me with goosebumps. So... I mean, I guess we'll never get to the bottom of why your dad was so protective and shielding you from the company of boys and from outside influence, if you like. But I'd love to know how that left you feeling about, uh, apart from feeling like this is unfair, what were your desires then? What were you thinking? This is, 
what kind of normal did you want to create for yourself? Well, actually, you know, when you're that age and you, you, well, for me, I was curious. I wanted to know. I wanted to talk to boys even more, to be honest. (laughs) Not for, not for any kind of other relationship than to just be equal to them, to talk to them, to be friends with them, to hang out, to hear what they had to say, to, you know, I, it made me want that even more and, and, and want to rebel against the unfairness that I was feeling. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And, and you know, as a teenager as well, you're, you're going through so much soul searching in terms of who you are and your identity and, and already, you know, teenagers notoriously feel misfits. You know, we feel like we're not who we who we want to be or where we'd like to be or or to be or satisfied with ourselves and then on top of that to have this kind of idea that you can't even feel the feelings that you want to feel because they yeah. would be they're not welcome that must have been a really hard time for you and also the other thing about um you know the culture that I was brought up in is that you know not just not talking about feelings or about boys it's just not talk, not talking about any feelings or anything that's going on. You know, that was a, I remember growing up and, um, you know, if somebody had gone through depression or was feeling depressed, that wasn't something that we talked about, mm. which is the worst thing. If you're in that situation, that is the worst thing that can happen to not talk about it, for it to be like a taboo in society. Um, you know, and then actually, um, when I was kind of between the ages of 16 and 17, um, I lost, we lost three of my grandparents. You know, they, three grandparents died within three months. Um, And that's quite, quite an ordeal to go through when, you know, because we're close to all of our grandparents, the extended family. Mm. Um, And actually that wasn't really talked about and how we dealt with that um, as a family. And that, great loss within a short period of time and actually I was I was like kind of going off the rails because and I think now looking back on it because we didn't talk about it because we didn't discuss what was happening and how we felt and how to deal with it um you know I I I stopped really trying at school well I was doing my A-levels by that point um you know I was predicted an ABC um and actually on results day, I came out with three Ds. And my dad had said to me that, you know, I wasn't going to be anything. And there was no point in me even thinking about going to uni because all I'd be, uh, be good for is to be a dustbin woman. That's what he used to say to me. So that, you know, so things, things were pretty bad by that point anyway. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I was determined because I was ambitious. You know, I wanted to get out into the world and I wanted to to see and learn and be a different person than I was back then. I I know you made a conscious decision to go to university against your father's approval. Talk us Mm. through what happened there and what was the, what was the big consequence that came out of that decision for you? I wanted to, I'd done A-level French, got quite into that language and I 
want I desperately wanted to do this um course this degree European business with French and it meant that you did four years and the third year would be out in France and I just thought it was just the most amazing thing I you know I wanted it with all of my heart but you know the course wasn't in Leicester either so I'd have to be away and then the third year I'd be away even further and he wasn't having any of it and you know to the point where he was like I'm not paying I'm not spending my hard-earned cash on your tuition fees and it's not like he couldn't afford it but it's just that he didn't want to spend that money on me what do you think his reasons were around saying those things? Because that's quite harsh, isn't it, to say, I'm not spending my hard-earned cash on your tuition fees. Where do you think that was rooted from? Well, you know, there's there's that belief in the Indian culture at times where, and this is totally what he believed, was that when a girl gets married, she's not part of your family anymore. Again, this is what I think. It's not that I know it. That it wasn't an investment worth having, I guess, you know, because in his mind, you know, maybe at the age of 19 or 20, um, if I hadn't have gone to university, he wanted me to work for a year and then get married, have an arranged marriage, and then I wouldn't be part of his family anymore. So that's what I think was going through his head. That's what I believe. But anyway, so I was, I couldn't do what I wanted to do. Um, and we were arguing all the time, you know, there was always something, you know, I wanted to go out, I wanted to go to the cinema with my friends, I wanted to go to uni, all of my friends went away to uni from college, but the only way that I could do it was to stay in Leicester. I had a look at what Leicester had to offer and they had business studies, again, a four-year course with a year out in uh, the third year, and he was like, no you've got to choose a three-year course because he just, if I was going to go and I was really fighting for it, then it had to be the shortest possible. So then I had to pick a three-year course. So, and also then I had to apply for the student loan to be able to pay for the fees. So then I had to pick business administration and I started that course. From starting that course in September, there was so much friction. He didn't want me to do it and I was still going ahead with it. We were arguing day in, day out. There was nothing... There was nothing left of our relationship, really. And it was really difficult. And I just knew, I just knew something had to happen. I knew something had to give because I didn't think I could carry on living like that. It was just not worth it for me. I I was like trapped. And actually, there was one day where he came home for lunch and my mom came home for lunch. So just the three of us. And we argued again. And then he just told me to get out and he didn't want me to live under his roof anymore because of the things that I wanted you know if I wanted those things and if I wanted to live that kind of life I couldn't live under his roof anymore and and with that he just said he said he told me to get out and then just as he was leaving to go back to work after his lunch break he turned to my mom and said she better not be here by the time I get back and then he left and my mom was like what are we gonna do I was like I'm ready to go. I mean, I didn't want to go. Of course not. I didn't want to leave my family home and leave my family full stop. You know, I was brought up believing that family was everything. But he told me to go and I was desperate to live my life in a different way. So um, she rang up her work and said, I'm not coming back after lunch. And we made a plan. And, you know, my granddad had 
passed away a number of years before and we still had the keys to his house and this is January by now so um, I'd done this one term at university in this course mm. I didn't really want to be doing and she was like well you know here's the keys to your granddad's old house go there so that's what I did so you're how old 80 yeah what were you feeling at that time so you've been thrown out of your family home it's almost like it's almost like I wanted it in a way because I just knew that um something had to change something had to give because I was I was determined to be a different person to live my life in a different way I was angry that he'd say that to me and make me do that but at the same time I was almost like oh my god is this my chance is this my chance to have what I want? Because there's a point at which, you know, I could have just been like, oh, no, sorry. I'm so sorry, Dad. I didn't mean it. Uh, it wouldn't have been true if I had have said that. But, you know, I could have decided at that point to forget that dream and just to go back and do what he wanted me to do. But I wanted more. I wanted to, like, I wanted to get out into the big wide world you know, all the stories and things that I'd heard about and seen and read about. And, you know, I wanted to go and experience that. I mean, I didn't want to not have my family because of that. But this was the only way I could see of being able to have that chance. Were you able to maintain a relationship with your mum at this time when you when you were made to leave home? Well... He made it very difficult for everybody. Um, he, you know, he was the eldest in the family. And uh, actually, so, so he threw me out on a Wednesday and it was snowing and it was January, it's freezing. And what happened was the next day uh, he sent uh, my mum and my brother around to um, come and tell me that if I wasn't living under his roof, that I also couldn't live under his dad's roof. So... This was now Thursday, and that I had to be out by the weekend. So um, he wasn't allowing me to stay there. And then also on the Sunday of that week, he called all my uncles and aunts and cousins and everybody, and he told them that he disowned me and that none of them should speak with me anymore. That was him cutting me out of everything. And at the same time, you know, he told my mum that she wasn't allowed to talk to me and my sister and everybody, basically. Um, that they weren't allowed to see me or talk to me or have any relationship with me going forward. And did they listen to him? It was difficult because, you know, he was the head of the family. He was the head of the entire family, you know, extended, etc. My mum is really difficult for my mum, you know. She's always lived that life where he's been in charge and what he says goes. You know, she doesn't have a say. Um, but we used to meet back then in secret and talk in secret. We'd meet when we could and talk in secret. Um, but it really was in secret because if she ever got found out, it would just be, you know, the worst thing ever. And some of my aunts, his sisters, you know, because also I wasn't allowed a mobile phone or anything. So how was anyone going to contact me then? How did anyone know where I was? I managed to get myself to pay as you go. And then one of my, a couple of my aunts, uh, got hold of the number and contacted me just to see if I was all right. But, you know, they'd also been told not to talk to me. So it was limited uh, in in what 
support they could give me or you know so they could call me to see if I was all right but that was that was about it it's not like I could there wasn't any more than that and I and then I had to get out by the weekend so um I then next morning marched my way over to the accommodation office of De Montfort University which is where I was studying and I told them my story and I was like I need somewhere to live and I need it quick and I was like but I've got no money because of course you know he was so controlling I you know I didn't have any of my own money and you know didn't have a job or anything so the accommodation office found me some emergency halls of residence they called it and it was like a dorm of 12 girls sharing two bathrooms and a kitchen but it was a roof over my head and I took it um so they're like yeah this is what the deposit is I was like I'm so sorry I've like literally got no money I can't put a deposit down so the students union agreed to pay my deposit and that's the only way that I got to move in there you know it was amazing I look back on that now and I just can't believe how lucky I was that the the union was ready to help me and then actually I, I got myself a job that, that same, the next weekend working for Next Directory uh, on the phones and they trained me and uh, it was because I was willing to work any and every hour that I possibly could. I, then, I was then working eight hours every Saturday and every Sunday with uni in the week. After about three months, I'd, I'd built up enough savings uh, after paying my rent to be able to buy myself a TV. So uh, that, was, that was a big plus for me at that point. And I'd also at the same time changed my course because, you know, I was doing the three-year course that I didn't want to do. Now, De Montfort wasn't offering the European business course that I wanted, but at least I could change to the business studies. So I then managed, because I'd only done a term so far, I then swapped over my course to business studies and I with the year out for the third year and I studied and I worked and I just started building my new life. So you've graduated from uni, you've been working and studying for the last few years and you finally have that certificate to go off and create a new life. What were your plans? Well I certainly you know having lived in Leicester all my life to that point I didn't really fancy going to London, um, which is so strange to say now. But, you know, I, at that point, you know, I'd still only kind of lived in Leicester. And I, um, uh, you know, I'd heard from people that it was expensive and it was busy and, you know, all those kind of things. So I, I was looking for a graduate job and, you know, I'd kind of I'd done that business studies degree and I kind of... Um, concentrated on the finance side um, of that course so um, I wanted to get a finance graduate program or something along those lines but actually you know I was in Leicester and there weren't that many really great ones um, to come by Um, and I got a job um, actually that started off in Birmingham so I was ready to move to Birmingham which was which was exciting because actually my sister was then at university in Birmingham because, you know, she, after me, things had changed for her and she was allowed to go away to uni. So um, she was living in Birmingham. And so all of a sudden I got a job that was starting off in Birmingham. So, you know, I could be in the same, I actually managed to get a flat on the same road as my younger sister, which was, 
you know, which was amazing for me. I was so excited. Had but you had only... stay connected with your sister over the years? Yeah, me and my sister have always been close. She was so young then. You know, if I was 18, she was 15. She would come and see me in secret. And she would always stay in contact with me. And she had her own issues with him as well. I mean, yes, I broke down that barrier and, you know, she was allowed to go away. Um, so that was great for her. And she she was also allowed to study any subject that she wanted. So anyway, I, I, went, I went and got this job in Birmingham and then they said they were moving to London. And after, so after four months, I, I kind of found myself in London and I wasn't really expecting it. Once I was in London, that was it. I didn't want to leave. It was like a whole new kind of chapter, always something going on, always something to do, always something new to see and experience. And I was like, my mind was blown and I couldn't believe how different it was and how different people were and just, you know, trying new things. It was a whole new world for me. London's Um, a great place to find yourself and to explore all the different aspects of yourself in a really safe, anonymous way. I love that. (laughs) Absolutely. I couldn't agree more on that statement, you know, and I think, um, you know, I'd kind of started, I kind of started off in this role and it was, you know, accountancy role and it was all going well, but, you know, I wanted more. I, there was, it was working in like a postal distribution business, which wasn't particularly interesting. Um, but you know, it got me in, got me on that first kind of step on the ladder and brought me into London. So then I started looking for another job after I'd been there for about 18 months. Um, and I got a job working in the music industry as their financial accountant, um, in an amazing building in Golden Square. And I, and it was just like, almost like what dreams are made of, because it was like entering into this like wonderful place and having a job in, in a music company, which was all exciting. And actually, that's where I, I met my husband, my now husband. Uh, we met at work at this music company and he'd worked there for like, he'd been there for a number of years anyway. And we didn't start dating straight away. But we'd got to know each other and uh, and now married anyway. So um, and I and I was working at this music company, and it was great. But I still wanted more. Got my ACCA. That was back in two thousand and eight. Went for this interview, and I they said, "Oh yeah, it's this chef. He's got a restaurant." Um, I didn't really really even know who it was. I mean, I'd looked him up before I went for my interview. Um, and it was Jamie Oliver, and I, I almost went in with my eyes closed in a way. But you know, by this point, he probably had he'd got a couple of books out. He'd done one TV show so far. So I went and I and I got the job. Well, I just said, "Wow, that's amazing!" <laughs> uh, well, little did I know at the time what that meant and who he was going to become. And you know, so I started right at you know, um, right at the beginning of that journey with him. And I worked there for five years and I kind of progressed. So I'd started as senior management accountant. Then I got promoted quite quickly to financial controller. Um, And then I became head of finance. And head of finance was the number one finance role in that business, reporting directly into the group CEO. And in that time, you know, he'd gotten from one to 44 restaurants you know, these were these were the amazing 
explosion days of his empire. We were opening restaurants and there were new brands. When I started there, Jamie's Italian was no such thing. Mm. Neither was, you know, Barbacoa, which was this amazing kind of meat and wine restaurant in St. Paul's. And, and also I worked a lot on his international franchise business, which is the side of the business that does really well even today, even if the rest of his um, restaurants are closed down. And that's where I found my love for the hospitality industry. Well, because when you work for someone like Jamie and, you know, you see like, because, you know, it was small business. You saw him every day then. Um, and you're learning about what's healthy and what's good for you and what's not good for you. And actually, I think back to my childhood and, you know, when I used to come home from school, if I was hungry for a snack, we had this like mini deep fat fryer on the counter. And I'd just get out some chicken nuggets from the freezer and, and, and deep fry them for us all to have as snacks, you know, when we come home. And I used to eat like, two or three packets of crisps at a time um, and like it's disgusting when I think about it now you know when I was growing up nobody really told me about what was healthy and what was not so I didn't really think about it and actually I was quite overweight when I was younger you know probably at the age of like 11 or 12 I was a lady size 16 and I had one aunt that used to call me Miss Piggy um and it used to upset me so much, but, you know, I didn't really know the importance of exercise and eating, eating well and eating healthily back then. And now that I know what I know, I look back at it and I just can't believe it. I soon learned because, because the comments about my weight were so, um, you know, hurtful back then. I kind of, you know, I, I, turned, I turned myself around and I, I lost the weight over some time when I was younger, but you know, I wish that my parents had known more. And I think it's just because they didn't know, not that they didn't want to teach me that. I think my mum just didn't know probably um, back then about how, you know, I think about my, my children now, I've got two girls and, you know, I limit what they can eat and what they can't eat. And, you know, they never drank Coca-Cola. They're six and seven years old. Um, and I'm very careful about, you know, what goes into their bodies. I think there's been a massive um, shift in education. And I think Jamie Oliver's actually spearheaded a lot of it, hasn't he, in terms of um, sugar intake with children and even through bringing healthy, nutritious food to our television screens and showing us all how to cook and eat in a fresh, wholesome, healthy way has helped all of us to eat better and I think the fact that you were sat around the table with him and being able to learn from somebody who's so passionate about food and nutrition must have been amazing must have been so I, I just imagine like you know you're sat at this table and the little girl in you is probably thinking I can't believe I'm here <laughs> yeah and it's true and also you know just there were so many like you know my parents at home would never ever have eaten half of the things that I was like sudden you know suddenly kind of opened up to like raw fish sushi you know like different types of um kind of just seafood and different types of vegetables you know there was no way that we we're eating anything like butternut squash or 
asparagus at home when I was growing up. Mm. You know, almost like, well, what is that? Here I was learning and working for a guy that was opening up these restaurants and serving up all of these new ingredients, new to me, um, in a delicious way. Um, and I've learned so much. I've learned so much of that. And I'm so excited to be able to pass that down, you know, to my, you know, to my, <coughs> my children, but also like being able to talk about it with other people. Um, you know, I eat quinoa and, I, uh, you know, I'd never heard of that. What's quinoa? But actually, um, a lot of these foods are relatively new in, in the, over the last 10 to 15 years, we've kind of discovered foods from all, all different parts of the world and um, in a way that we just didn't before. I think when we were growing up, there were there was a limitation on what you could get hold of and what, mm. what, what was widely accepted as mainstream food. And I think, but it's amazing that you were in a, this privileged position where you were at the forefront of somebody who has um convinced an entire nation to eat healthily so that's that's really where my love for hospitality came from and and when leaving Jamie so like five years later so this must have been about 2013 um I was my heart was then set on only working in the hospitality industry that's all I wanted still in the finance role absolutely but, you know, I'd been head of finance and I just wanted to, I wanted my first FD role. I wanted to be a finance director and that's what I went for. And even though it was really scary because could I be a finance director? Did I know what I was doing? And actually, looking back on it, no, I didn't. But I was willing to learn. And if someone was willing to give me the chance, I was going to do it. So, um I then landed myself a job as finance director. So I'd done a bit of contracting in between working for um, Berry Brothers and Rudd, a wine and champagne spirits company. And then I'd kind of got this job um, where my first finance director role working for the Draft House, which is um, a premium pub company. So sites mainly in London. And um, the the chairman... The chairman of the draft house was Luke Johnson, who's quite a fierce and aggressive chair businessman, but has has um, invested in loads, loads and loads of hospitality businesses. Um, so basically, he knows his stuff, and he's so that was quite scary coming into that. I mean, you know, I wonder sometimes how I managed to get into these roles. But I must have just been so convincing in my interviews. So there I was having board meetings, eight of us around the table. I was the only female. I was the only non-white person as well. Um, and I was sitting in these board meetings, um, being finance director for a business. When I started, had three pubs. And um, three and a half years later, we built that business up to 16 pubs all doing really well and then um Brewdog had come a- along and said we want to buy you so um yeah we knew a sale was going to happen but probably sometime down the line and they were quite persistent in their offer so 
so then you know kind of we went with it um after after some negotiations and you know we got brought out bought out by Brewdog and um and I I exited the company then and I was like wow that was an experience and a half and whilst I was recruited into that role as an inexperienced FD what it give, gave me the chance was in that time you know we'd opened other pubs we'd bought smaller uh smaller businesses within that time and now I'd also done the transaction of a sale so it really built up my experience and my knowledge and it certainly wasn't easy because there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know and I had to kind of just learn on the go mm-hmm. and just get it and just get it done because you know we weren't we weren't messing around it was real and I had to do my job so um so I just would love to know so while you're sat in these boardrooms you exited working with Jamie Oliver after having mm-hmm. helped him and his companies to evolve and develop mm-hmm. now you're with a new company and you're sat there as the financial director what are you feeling about yourself in those moments I mean obviously there was a lot of learning you were doing it sounds like you were winging a lot and you were figuring yeah. out a lot and you were kind of going with the flow but how are you feeling about yourself what does this do to your confidence there were so many feelings at the time because Number one, I just couldn't believe that I, I was now a finance director. You know, so the, the founder of that business who had interviewed me, he, he believed that I was the person to help him run and grow that business. So that was massive, massive boost for me. But then there was like the other side of me that was really scared because it's like, oh my God, do I know what I'm doing? Can I actually do this job? How am I going to perform? And actually, I just put my my blood, sweat and tears into that business, as I do kind of with all of the jobs that I've had, because, you know, I really believe in the brands that I've worked for. And I just gave it my all. And I was like, I was so determined. I just wanted to succeed. And I just wanted to be like, actually, that's what I'm all about. I can do it for myself. And I am going to do it. You know, I really believe that if there is something that you want that's out there and you want it so badly, you'll do anything and everything that it takes to get there. And I think that's, you know, that was my drive and my determination. I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be successful and I wanted to use my brain for and, and build a business again at Draft House as I helped with um, at Jamie's. And it was it was a roller coaster, absolute roller coaster. But I loved every minute of it. So let's fast forward to a few years ago. You had an idea to set up your own company. So yeah. So then after after Draft House, I um, I then worked for a coffee company, and I was CFO there. Um, and I was only there for about eleven months. But actually, you know, that was a really tough eleven months. Um, and in that time, again, I put my all into this business. I'm doing all of this and I'm, I'm building for somebody else. What would it be like if I did that for myself, actually? And all the time, over all of the years, I always have my own opinion on, on the businesses that I've worked for or worked within. And I always think, you know, oh, it would have been so much better if they did it this way or if they did it this way. But of course, it's up to the founder of that business. I've always had that kind of desire to, 
to build something of my own. And so after working at the coffee company and getting some, you know, I'd now worked in restaurants, pubs, and now coffee, I was like, well, I want to give it a go. I'm going to have a go at it myself. I'm not quite, I'm not quite 40 yet, but I just thought if I, if I don't give it a go now, I might regret it forever that I didn't try. Because also if I, I thought, well, if I give it a go now and it doesn't work out, I could probably still get back into like a, a finance director or a CFO role if I had to. But what do I really want? And I thought, what I really want is to do it for myself. So, and over the years, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a cafe or even even a nightclub and a bar? And, you know, all of those kind of thoughts had gone through my head, but nothing had ever really kind of worked out or I'd never really taken it much further. But then, you know, at this point in my career, I was like, well, you know, I've kind of ticked those boxes and I've got this far. I like to give it a go at being an entrepreneur. So, my idea um, came about by bringing a few of those things together of, you know, using the experience of the places that I've worked and Bloom's Yard was born from all of those ideas. And Bloom's Yard in non-lockdown times should be um, a cafe wine bar where you can get speciality coffee, well-being teas like matcha teas, etc., good like infusions, delicious wine. So, you know, I was like, they're all, I love all three of those things, tea, coffee, and wine. That's what I'm going to go for. Lockdown happened and Bloom's Yard is just an online shop for now. You plan to have premises? Yeah, one day for sure. I mean, that's what I really want. Amazing. In my heart, I want Bloom's Yard to be a physical site where people can visit. For now, it's just an online shop, but, you know, it's... It's a place where you can start having a try of what Bloom's Yard is about. And at the point where life gets back to some kind of normality, I think um, it's definitely going to be a place that you can visit and come in. You know, you could be a Bloom's Yard customer and come in in the morning for your coffee, maybe have a meeting in the afternoon with a cup of tea and even come back if you loved it that much for a glass of wine in the evening. It's kind of like an all day affair. Sounds lovely. I think it'll. <laughs> I think it'll be a treat for all of us when that does open up. So, where are you today in your life? How are you feeling about yourself, your hopes for the future, and just generally how how are you planning to navigate the next few years? You know, it took it took a really long time to accept what had happened to me. Um you know, it wasn't easy to make the decision to keep going. You know, and I, I, I had many, many ups and downs over the years, but actually I'm now at peace with what's happened. And that's actually the only reason why I can talk to you about it now, because I've accepted, you know, that my dad didn't love me enough to allow me to be my own person. And the only way that I could be myself was to go through this. But actually, it's made me a hundred times better person than I would have been if I'd have stayed there. I now have like two beautiful daughters, a very loving husband who supported me the whole way through. You know, we have a great life. I've kind of built up my career and I'm still going. I just 
you know, I'm continuously looking to improve. And I think, you know, the start of Bloom's Yard now is, is, is another new chapter for me. And I'm excited. I can't wait uh, for it to be, you know, the physical site where I can welcome Bloom's Yard guests all day long. And I think it's going to be fantastic. I'm just waiting for lockdown to properly end and people to feel confident about going back out and, you know, for this virus to be gone or whatever the new, I don't know what it's going to be like um, going forward. You know, maybe we'll find a vaccine and, you know, things might get back to some kind of normal that we knew, but I am, I'm really excited and I'm just, I'm just, you know, I had to go through a lot to get here, but it was worth it. It has been worth it. I can tell. I mean, your, your story is so inspiring and fascinating. And the thing that runs throughout, it's almost littered with this constant, these pivots in your life where there was just this constant belief, this relentlessness to be better, to do more. And you haven't said it, but it's almost like this belief somewhere in your heart that you deserve more. And and I feel like it came up time and time and time again. And you kept aspiring and moving forward to create a life for yourself that was a bit better than the last few years. And you felt that at every point, at every juncture in your life. And and I know from our conversation that we've had before and today that I don't see that ever ending for you. I think you're somebody who will continue to evolve and expand and grow your potential. It is. It's just, it's just wanting. It's wanting more and, and wanting better and not, not just accepting that this is what it is. You know, believing that there is more out there for me mm. or for any of us, you know, because by me sharing this story, I want people to know that they can be who they want to be and, you know, nothing should stop them. You know, it hasn't stopped me. And I, I now live a really happy life with my little family at home and I'm doing those things that I want to do and I just want everyone to know that they can be the same. Thank you for your time, Barty. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. And I just hope that um, that people do feel inspired by it. So, um, yeah, and see you one day at Bloom's Yard. Definitely. We'll see you <laughs> I'll make sure all the links for Bloom's Yard are in the show notes for all my listeners. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Roxana Hussein, and you've been listening to the Personal Power Boost Podcast. I don't like to ask anything of my listeners, but I've been told this really helps get the message out. Please go to the Apple Podcast app to rate and review this episode. If you're feeling generous, download three episodes as this helps the podcast reach more people so we can be of service to a growing community. Do join me next time for another Personal Power Boost. Thank you for listening.